Welcome in everybody to a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am your host, John Harris. Glad to be with you yet again as we get ready for the Oakland Raiders. Yes, I love it. I love saying the Oakland Raiders. I love playing the Oakland Raiders. And it will be the Raiders going forward, but it will be the last time it will be the Oakland Raiders. At least, I guess, for the foreseeable future. Now, we thought that back in the 80s. And then they ended up moving from L.A. back to Oakland in the mid-90s and became Oakland again. So maybe they'll go back to Oakland at some point. But Las Vegas is going to be a pretty interesting experiment, to say the least. But it's the Oakland Raiders on Sunday. And unless there's a playoff matchup between these two, it'll be the last time the Texans play the Oakland Raiders. And hopefully it goes like the last time the Texans played the Oakland Raiders, which was a wild-card playoff game at the end of the 2016 season. Texans won 27 to 14 to move on to the divisional round. So hoping for a similar result. I wouldn't mind like a 47 to 3 kind of game. That would be kind of nice. Not have to stress. But either way, we will just take a W at any cost. So we're breaking it all down tonight. We've got plenty for you. We got Andre Ware on the show. My man Clint Sterner is on the show as well. We're going to go behind the mics with Mark Vandermeer, but this week, it's with our good buddy from preseason and also from Westwood One. And he's also doing Fox play-by-play this weekend, I think, for the Buccaneers, I believe. Kevin Kugler is going to be by. And Eddie Pascal from Raiders.com. And our In the Lab crew talks a little bit about what we saw against the Colts and what to look forward to against the Raiders. So we've got plenty on the show for you tonight. That's right. And oh, by the way, I'm John Harris, football analyst and silent reporter. And we kick off each and every show with some hot reads. Yes, hot reads brought to you by Geico. 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. And tonight's first hot read is going to be not the injury report, but transactions. We'll get the injury report in just a second. But the Texans had a boatload Is that the right way of saying it? A boatload of transactions. A lot of them. And it starts with a trade. Now, you don't see the other half of the trade on the transaction listing, but it was a trade. Gary Conley becomes a Texan. Six foot, 190. He's been in the league since 2017. He was drafted, I believe, number 24 by the Raiders. Now, that was a different Raiders regime. Gruden, John Gruden, came in in 2018, and then Mike Mayock was brought to the Raiders to be the GM after Reggie McKenzie was let go in 2018. So they did not draft Gary on Conley. Gruden moved on from him. He had been starting for the Raiders up until uh, up until he was traded, and now the Raiders are going to go with a handful of different guys at corner. It's going to be kind of interesting that the for the second year in a row, a player the Texas trade for at the trade deadline – Plays his former team right after being traded for. It's it's odd in some respects. But Garyon Conley has been added. He will wear number 22. And when you see him, you're like, whoa, that's a big dude playing corner. He is. six foot 190 almost doesn't do it justice. He looks like he's almost 6'1". He's a big guy. He was standing next to Keon Cross in day of practice. I mean, Keon's not the biggest guy in the world. But Keon's not a you know little person. Garyon was standing looking down at him. So... Hopefully, Garyon will come in here, help the Texans because they have been banged up at corner. Bradley Roby with the hamstring. 
J.J. had been banged up a little bit. We'll get the injury report and see what the update is on those players. Uh, Philip Gaines was hurt, that left ankle from friendly fire. The last offensive play the Colts ran on Sunday, the one, the only, the last offensive play that mattered. Uh, when T.Y. Hilton caught the little screen pass, a little hit screen, and Philip was making a tackle and then took kind of fell underneath T.Y. and another Texan when I think it was Bernardrick who came over the top to finish the tackle. And so Philip ends up going to IR. So that's the other side of this. So Conley added at corner. Philip Gaines, unfortunately, goes to IR. I hate that because Philip was really, really playing well. Really playing well. Now, Conley comes in. Gaines, unfortunately, goes to IR. Jarrell Adams is added to the practice squad. Now, Texans had an opening on the practice squad because Stevie Mitchell added to the 53-man roster. That would mean, okay, we've got to now, we've added Conley, we subtracted Gaines, we added Mitchell. The subtraction is at tight end with Logan Paulson. He is released from the active roster. So, additions to the 53-man roster. Garyon Conley via trade with the Raiders. Stevie Mitchell from the practice squad. Deletions from the 53-man roster. Unfortunately, Logan Paulson released. And more unfortunately, Phillip Gaines is placed on IR. To the practice squad is then Jarrell Adams, who was here throughout training camp. And I want I want to say that the tight end room is now back again, the same five guys that it was back in training camp with Darren Fells and Jordan Akins on the 53, with Jarrell Adams now practice squad, and then Kali Waring and Jordan Thomas on IR. And hopefully in due time we'll see what, what's going to happen with the tight end situation. They've played very, very well, but do we get to a point where Jordan Thomas and or Kali Waring are going to be added to the roster at some point? We'll see. But good news, Gary Conley is added to the mix at corner. The Texans apparently worked out, according to reports, that the Texans did work out some other corners, some other players, but they're, I guess, at this point, set with what they're going to do, adding Gary Conley. Former first-rounder, played at Ohio State, played in the secondary with Marshawn Lattimore and Denzel Ward. And what I thought was interesting back in 2016, when they were all three together, Marshawn ended up being the higher of the three draft picks in 2017, well, two, because Denzel Ward went fourth overall, but that was after the 2017 season. But Ward and Lattimore would trade off at times, and it was Conley who stayed on the field full-time. He went to the combine, ran 4-4, had a nearly 40-inch vertical leap. He had a 6.68 three-cone, which is smoking quick. Now, I don't know that it's all come together for Gary and Conley, but it's almost a futures bet in some sense. Now, you're taking a guy who's a first-round talent, has first-round skills, body, build, everything, and you're getting him for a third-rounder. Now, I know a lot of people are like, whoa, wait a second. The Texans aren't going to have any draft picks. Listen, they're going to be fine. They've got their second. They've got their third. They will have a fourth. They've got Miami's fourth. Miami's fourth is going to be like a late third. And then they've got a fifth, a sixth, and maybe I think they've got their seventh and maybe a seventh or another maybe two sevenths. So they're going to have seven or eight picks. So the draft next year is going to be first-rounder Laramie Tunsil, second-rounder 
Kenny Stills and whatever second round pick we make. Third rounder is going to be the Seattle's third is Garyon Conley, Jake Martin, and Barkevius Mingo. You just you did you made all those moves. Basically, you got experienced players instead of draft picks. Look, is it a different way of doing it? Yeah, sure. Everybody wants draft capital, but this isn't a team really where there's a lot of a room for a bunch of first, second, third round picks. Would I love to have them? Sure. Sure, because then you can package him. If you get to that point, then you can package him and move up and get a better player, all that kind of stuff. But the Texans have done this. And I, listen, you went out and got Laramie Tunsil, I have no problem with that. None whatsoever. None. When you go get a premium player at that position, got no problems with it. And that's the thing. You traded to go get a corner, and you traded to go get a left tackle. Those are two premium positions in the NFL. Premium positions. You traded a six-rounder to go get Keon Crossan. He's been very valuable to your team. So, different strokes, different folks. But, that all said, and come from me, who loves a draft, I feel like the Texans have done things to bolster their 2019 team. But, Gary Ann Conley's 24. Larry Tunsil's 25. It's not as if they traded for Trent Williams, who's nearly 32. Or they traded for somebody that's got a, you know two, three years. Jake Martin, 24, I think. So, you're talking about young guys that have been drafted. Or, young guys that have been traded for. So, Either way, it's maybe a different story for a different day. The whole deal is the transactions. Connolly in, uh, Steve Mitchell in, Paulson out, Gaines to IR, Adams to the practice squad. There you go. All right, next hot read. Let's go to what I just mentioned, the injury report, because it's a little bit long today, and I hate that, but the Texans have suffered through some injuries, and so, well, got to figure out. Not yet who's in and who's out, but it is always good to know what's been going on through practice. So here you go on both sides. Out for the Texans. And this is uh, not not uh, not out of the game, I should say. I should say out. That's the wrong way of saying it. Did not participate in practice today. Will forward the hamstring. Titus Howard coming back for the knee. And then Greg Mance dealing with that uh, concussion, still trying to come back from that. Limited today. This is a little bit longer. Dylan Cole to Sean Gibson, Roderick Johnson, Taiwan Jones, Jonathan Joseph, Bradley Roby, John Weeks. So you're looking at Joseph, jo- uh, Joseph Roby, Gibson, three starters in the secondary. So you had a guy like Gary on Conley. Uh, you needed that Gary on Conley. Weeks, he dealing with that ankle. He has said all along, I'm going to play. I'm going to fight through it. That ankle was bad. That ankle was real bad. On Sunday, I don't know how weeks he was able to run. And he snapped brilliantly the whole game. Tough dude. Absolutely tough dude. Full participants, A.J. Moore, Justin Reed, and Kenny Stills. Now, on the Raiders' side, they're not immune. They've been dealing with some injuries. And two, actually, all four of them are key. Three of them in particular. Three DM, Four DMPs for the Raiders today. Rodney Hudson, guard. Gabe Jackson, I'm sorry, Rodney Hudson, center. Gabe Jackson, right guard. Those are huge. I mean, those guys are huge, but those injuries are massive. Those two guys are hugely important to what the Raiders do offensively. The other guy that's massively important is Josh Jacobs. Now, I didn't sense in people that I follow from Oakland that there was concern about any of these guys missing time, 
But when you see him pop up as DNPs on the injury report, boy, it's tough. And two interior linemen and guard center guard for the Raiders, very good. Incognito, Hudson, and Jackson are excellent. And Josh Jacobs is one of the better running backs in the league already as a rookie. The fourth one was Arden Key, edge rusher. They're going to need him back. They need some pass rush presence. He did not play. He was not active against the Packers, and he was out again with that knee. Trent Brown did not play against the Packers. Now, there was some off-the-field concerns with Trent earlier in the week. I don't know if that played into why he didn't play against the Packers, but he's been dealing with a calf issue. He was limited today. So is Tyrell Williams, who's been banged up and caught, I think, touchdowns in the first four games for the Raiders, coming over from the Chargers. Those are big. I mean, Trent Brown's maybe the biggest human being we've ever seen. Tyrell Williams is very important on the offense. And then full participant was Dwayne Harris, return guy, kind of a jack-of-all-trades uh, offensive weapon, if you will. So both teams dealing with injury situations, which at this point in the year, it's not unexpected at all. Not unexpected at all. I think the concerns for your Texans end up being Roby Joseph Gibson, even though Gary Ann Conley has been added. I would love to see a backfield that had J. Joe, Lonnie Johnson, Gary Ann Conley, and Bradley Roby. To have four guys that can run and cover a little bit, but that would be kind of nice. But you don't have that luxury right now because Rope's banged up with that hamstring and then J.J. and Deshaun. Getting Deshaun back would be big against Darren Waller. Huge. And that was one of the things. I don't think we made enough of that. When Gibson went out of the game early in the second quarter, I believe it was, that's when Eric Ebron started to kind of go off. And he, I mean, he had four catch, five catches. I mean, I think he had one or maybe none up to that point. So losing Gibbs, a big, that's a big deal. And it was a big deal on Sunday, so hopefully he's back. But for the Raiders, three offensive linemen on an injury report and three massive guys. These three guys, I think, set the tone. Hudson, Jackson, and Trent Brown, along with Incognito. Those, those guys set the tone. I think Colton Miller is still developing as a left tackle. But those four guys set the tone that they're going to mash you in the mouth and, and physically try and take over the game, try and run you out of the building. The Raiders were able to do that against the Colts. Let's hope they're not able to do that against your Texans. So there you go. Injury report, and those are your hot reads presented to you by Geico. 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. All right, rest of this hour, we turn it over to our quarterbacks. We will have Clint Sterner at the bottom of the hour with me, but coming up next, it's Andre Ware, our game analyst, Heisman Trophy winner, 1989 college football analyst. He sat down with the voice of Texans, Mark Vandermeer. That is for you after the break. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am John Harris, football analyst and silent reporter and former math teacher. And I'm calling all Houston area teachers. You want to bring a little Texas football to your classroom? Then sign up for Toro's Math Drills presented by ConocoPhillips. Toro's Math Drills is a video series designed to help third and fourth graders learn how to tackle math in the classroom. Go to HoustonTexas.com slash Toro's Math Drills to learn more. It's time to talk to our good friend Andre Ware, game analyst, 1989 Heisman Trophy winner, and just all-around great guy. He sat down with Mark Vandermeer earlier today. Joining us right now, Andre Ware. So, Dre, coming off that loss to the Colts, here we have the Raiders in town. And I want to start right here, Derek Carr, because I find his career interesting. Of course, he was a little kid here when the Texans started out. And when he started out in the NFL, rose up pretty quickly. 2016, Mexico City, 
has a really good game against the Texans. Looks like he's one of the best young quarterbacks in the league. What's happened since then, in your opinion, as he gets ready to come in here on Sunday? Too much disconnect. I mean, I think Reggie McKenzie was doing a heck of a job of surrounding him with talent as a young player. And then all of a sudden, you know, you look at it, there have been players that are, are taken away from him. Amari Cooper was traded. You know, a playmaker on the defensive side of the ball that can help you get the ball back and more possessions. That was, He was traded to Chicago. I mean, it was just one after the other uh, that were, you know, escorted out of town. I actually think he has done a heck of a job with only Josh Jacobs behind him, essentially. I, I bet there aren't many people that could name one, needless to say, two Raider receivers. It is tough to uh, to go down the list and just name a playmaker on that side of the ball. Yet he's throwing, you know, completing passes at a very high percentage, playing some of the best football of his career, and not a lot is around Derek Carr. So I think it just shows you what type of player he actually is. Well, and also they are winning some games. They beat the Colts in Indy. They beat the Bears in London. What are they doing well, in your opinion, Trey? Well, I think when, they, uh, when they're winning, it's, it's that, you know, the, things normal teams do is taking care of the football, not turning it over. The running game is working with Josh Jacobs, who's a three down back. You can leave him in the game. You really don't know what they're going to do because they don't take him out. Uh, he's a good receiver out of the backfield and a tough, tough, hard runner. So uh, with that being said, it's just, you know, the, the simple things that it takes to win in, in, uh, in the NFL, running the football and not turning it over. Well, Dre, the Texans are trying to cut down on the penalties. What do you think they need to do to do that, and how can they take better care of the football in these games? Because that's been a bit of an issue. They're even in the turnover margin right now. Yeah, I think it's just uh, a matter of discipline. you got to kind of be a little bit disciplined. The pre-snap penalties are really coming at some uh, inopportune times that, that really hurt you. They're, they're drive starters. Or when you're in first down, you're living in first and 15 because of false starts. You could take the effort penalty. There are going to be holes during a the game. They're going to be pass interference plays and so on and so forth. But uh, when you look at it, you can't have on a critical third down where you're getting off the field. All of a sudden, there's holding in the secondary. you got to play better in that regard. But on offense, the penalties that happen before the ball is snapped will drive coaches crazy, and those absolutely have to stop. Okay, so Raiders and Texans this Sunday at NRG Stadium. Around the division, the Titans get a win over the Chargers, and that was a bit of a surprise, really. Chargers unable to get the ball into the end zone late. The Buccaneers are going to be at Tennessee. What do you think of Ryan Tannehill with the Titans right now? Is this a bit of a resurrection for them? How long do you think it lasts? What do you think overall? It seems to be that way. I mean, I I think uh, it kind of fits what, what Mike Vrabel wants to do, he's given him a, a, a spark, which is what uh, Coach Vrabel was looking for when he inserted him into the lineup. And I, and I think he gives them an element of consistency where they can actually throw the football and uh, and do it in an effective way throughout the course of a game. I think he threw for over over 300 yards in his first start there, and and uh, and there was a difference in 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 beating the Chargers. And defensively, you flip it over there. They've got some talent on that football team on both sides of the ball. Melvin Gordon fumbling it from the one-yard line that really sealed the deal for, for Tennessee. But Tannehill is, is a guy that has had some talent. Uh, he's had moments. He had moments when he was in Miami. I think the team believes in him, and, 
And and that's half the battle right there is when you can go into a game and you believe in the quarterback. You'll play hard for that guy, for, for the guy under center. And I think that's what happened last week. Andre, we're with us. Dre, how good are the Patriots, in your opinion? Is this the best Patriot team we've seen since 07 or in a long time, or is the schedule just too much in their favor right now to make that determination? What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't I don't think it's the best Patriots team we've seen in a while because they keep adding uh, components to it, especially at, at the receiver pos- position where they, you know they, they, they made a trade for Mohamed Sanu, who obviously before the draft they were trying to uh, trying to acquire as well to bolster a receiving core, but uh, I, I'm not sure it's the best best version of. Them. I mean, the, the the tight end position without Gronk, they still would like to have Gronk come out of Ironman and and uh, and put pads and a helmet back on and, and help them out. I think it's it's everything to do with with the schedule and where they're catching people. And they play in a division where you know you're going to win. You're going to beat Buffalo every year. You're going to beat the Jets every year. You know, so that's that's four wins right there uh, before you even you even uh, take a snap. And and you know you got Miami on the schedule as well. So uh, a weak division uh, and and others that they've played outside of the, the the division they've they've been able to take care of as well. So I think it has every bit this early in the season to do with the with the with the uh, schedule. I'm sorry. Andre, where with us? Andre, I want to transition to you and the 1989 Houston Cougars football team being honored 30th anniversary, the Thursday night ceremony. I always thought it was very interesting, and it says a lot about you, that winning the Heisman Trophy to you was a team thing. It was a team award. Can you speak to that a little bit? And I, I'm sure your teammates really appreciate that because you guys weren't able to get to a bowl that year because of things that happened in the program long before you were there. You know, it was we, we were just a close knit bunch, and and it's something that we all share in. And I may reside at my house, uh, but you know, those guys know that they each and every one of them uh, have a piece of it. And and we couldn't go to a bowl game that year, as you mentioned, for things that happened to to, to the program long before we uh, stepped foot on campus. But it was always a close knit bunch. Nobody transferred the NCAA. It was almost like they were trying to destroy programs in the Southwest Conference at that point in time because it was so long before we got there, yet we couldn't play on television, couldn't go to uh, a bowl game. They gave us the option, or every player, a one-time transfer option, and not one single player left. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just a brotherhood that we've always been able to kind of keep, and uh, there's a lot of respect in the locker room. And, and I realized as well that I could not have done my job without the help of the other guys and, and people forget just how 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 good we were on the defensive side of the ball with the number two ranked defense in the country they got tons of turnovers i think uh, cornelius price uh led the nation i know he led the nation that year but i think he had somewhere around 12 interceptions uh that year so we were getting the ball back a lot on the offensive side of it because of the success that our defense had so um we we played off one another and uh, it was just a fun, fun team to play on and a fun group of guys to to uh, to suit up with each and every weekend, each and every day for that matter. All right. I want to take you through. Just give me a thumbnail on some of these games that took place that season. First of all, you beat UNLV in Vegas to start the campaign. That must have been fun. And then you go to Arizona State. So you had two games. I got to imagine it was not exactly cool autumn weather in either of those two. <laughs> Do you remember uh, that? One of the, 
<clears throat> one of the two of the hotter games that we played in, and I remember I can't remember the 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 young man's name or the guy's name that played quarterback at UNLV, but I know he went to Jack Yates High School, and he provided some some really bulletin board material uh, before that game, which you know I think the final score I know the final score was sixty nine to nothing the whole season, but but uh, it was it was very motivating a guy that was right from from down the street that went went to school at UNLV that was you know, talking a lot of trash, and and uh, we just we just had to go in and and take care of business. Then the Arizona State game uh, was as hot as it got. It all Pac-12 officials. We had a ton of yards and penalties because every time we made a play, it seemed like there was a flag on the field. We still still beat them pretty good. I think it was 36 to seven somewhere around there. But uh, yeah, those were two two of the hotter games that I've ever played in. Okay, University of Texas at the Astrodome, forty-seven to nine. The Cougars beat the Longhorns. That had to be memorable, to say the least. Yeah, it was, and and uh, one of my favorite plays, or the favorite play of my college career, happened in that game where I uh, we 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 were, we worked on it all game all week long and practice of sneaking David Klingler into the huddle and, and direct snapping to him as I was audibling and. Uh, pretending to audible and then walked out, ran a switch route down the sideline and, and caught a pass, a long pass in that, in that ball game. That was, uh, it wasn't a, a throw that I made that I remember most, but it was, it was catching that pass against Texas in the dome that, that was, that turned out to be my, my favorite play in, in, in college. 30th anniversary celebration. You're at Rice to cap off the season 60, only yeah. 64 to nothing, the victory. Now, the Bayou Bucket, you win it. Was that the day you won the Heisman? It was, and uh, the thing about that is they, they had us in this small room at Rice Stadium, and, and uh, you know, big ups to Rice for for allowing the announcement to take place there, and they made certain, you know, the, the accommodations they made for us to get that taken care of was it just shows the, the class in which they operate there. But we we were we were all in this room and, and the offensive line and some of the receivers, Coach Pardee and myself, and and uh, when they announced it, it was just uh, it was just crazy. I mean, you, you wouldn't have ha- I wouldn't have had it happen any other way. Where I got to actually spend that time, that special time, and the announcement with uh, with my my uh, my teammates, it was like I, like we just talked about. It was every bit a part of theirs as it is mine. And uh, to to have it work out that way, where the way it was announced was was uh, second to none. And it was December second. My gosh, it, that's like mid season yeah. now. It feels. <laughs> yeah, it was. That's probably the last time it will will happen, or was the last time where they moved it back a week to make sure that all games in the regular season have been played, and it's now the second week of December to to make sure that uh, that all all uh, finalists are in New York. Uh, and seated for the for the presentation so that was uh it, it was just, it worked out exactly like it was supposed to well congratulations once again 30th anniversary celebration of the 1989 cougars and the heisman trophy year dre it's uh it's wonderful to talk about it thanks so much for being with us we look forward to seeing you sunday awesome thanks buddy i'll see you there great stuff from one quarterback so let's spend time with another quarterback clint sterner joins me next on texans all access Welcome back to a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am joined now by my good friend. You hear him on Sports Radio 610 from 2 to 6 in the afternoon. 
You hear him covering Arkansas Razorback football, his alma mater. You hear him on our post-game show on Sundays and Thursdays and Mondays whenever we're playing. He's doing a post-game show with Sean Pendergast. They do a great job. And my good friend, Clint Stern. Clint, what's going on, brother? How you doing? Man, not much. Just uh, just on to the next, man. Tough week last week for the Texans, but on, on to the next. And, 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 and uh, just so you know, it was a tough week for my Razorbacks as well, brother. So, so yeah. we're all going to lay around a while. We're going to bleed a little bit. We're going to lick our wounds and – uh, man, we'll go back at it next Saturday, next Sunday. It's all ready to rock and roll. Well, Clint, uh, don't worry about it because my alma mater gave up 51 before halftime to Princeton. So uh, it happens. Uh, we understand <laughs> that. So <laughs> not, not, Maybe Arkansas doesn't give up 51 before halftime, but we had a tough time with Princeton. But, Clint, I, I, I know there's been a lot of – there's been a lot of World Series talk, so maybe not as much focus on the Texans, but obviously football runs through our blood, so I'm sure you've talked about it this week. And I'm sure there are probably some things that people are concerned about, things that maybe they're not as concerned about. What's kind of your overall thought process after seven games, after what you saw on Sunday against the Colts? Is there something that really concerns you, and there's something that maybe doesn't concern you as much as maybe it does others? How do you look at where this team is right now coming out of that loss to Indianapolis? Well, I think the biggest concern is injuries. You know, I mean, you've got the secondary is obviously depleted, and that game, that Indy game, is is totally uh, a different outcome if if you don't have second and third string um, DBs in the game and 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 you, you don't get all of the, the whether it was illegal contact or pass interference or holding or whatever you want to call it you know that clearly um, that clearly was a problem Sunday and, and allowed the Indianapolis Colts uh, a very run dominant uh, play clock time uh, you know game clock chewing offense. Um, it, you know, it, it allowed them to, to be effective through the air and, and convert third downs. And it, it's hard to overcome that, man. And so uh, you couple that with the fact that you that Titus Howard's down, you got you got a right tackle issue, even though Roger Johnson's playing well. Uh, Will Fuller goes out early. I mean, you just got some, some injury problems, which everybody has. But, but those, those are the biggest concerns for me. I mean, everybody has them. Some teams have the ability to overcome them with personnel and, and, and creativity in the play calling and, and maybe changing the defensive scheme a little bit. But um, it's, so, so that's the concern, John, for me, is, is what, what do the Texans look like moving forward as, as they're hit with, with an issue that everybody deals with? How do they handle it? And can they win games uh, you know, and, and really just, just hold down the fort until guys get back? Clint, I, I know on Sunday I was – I guess frustrated is probably the right word, watching the Texans' offense because I felt like there were times when they just decided, okay, we're going to go down a score on this drive, and you guys aren't going to be able to stop us. And I think a great example of that was the five-play, 75-yard drive uh, in the third quarter after the Colts had made it 21-9. The Texans just went five plays, went up tempo, and just went right down into the end zone. But it felt like there were times where they were just shooting themselves in the foot, and obviously the first drive I think was a great example of that. But it feels sort of frustrating watching the offense kind of, you know, they get in the left lane and then they go 100 miles an hour and all of a sudden they stub their toe and they're kind of stuck behind traffic. What are your thoughts as you watch this offense look great at times and then at other times it's like, what, what are we doing, guys? We can't get lined up. I mean, that's what's killing us here. What do you think about overall the way the offense kind of stubbed its toe a little bit on Sunday yet still has as much explosiveness as it could possibly have? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the penalties, the red zone issues, I mean, I mean, those are all um, they're 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 unacceptable. They they can they can be corrected, um, whether it's just by the players buckling down and and 
and and not jumping early or, or or you know getting their nose in the playbook a little bit a little bit more and and having a little sense of a little more of a sense of urgency in how they get aligned and assigned and how they move pre-snap. I mean that that stuff can be cleaned up with a with a with a a, a, a large amount of focus throughout the week. And so it's it's not a, a a major concern. Look, John. I mean, here's to me this is what we're watching. You've seen some really really good offensive football. Uh, and when I say good, I don't just mean production. I'm talking about the the, the communication and right. the consistency and the red zone, uh, the red zone uh, good and and the third down conversion good. And then you've seen some really really bad uh, of, of those same those same scenarios. Last week it was the red zone versus Carolina. It was third downs and getting stuck in third and long ten plus times. Um, you know, so you've seen some really good and some really bad. But I tell you, when you when I look at the product that's on the field. Last week was frustrating, but it was not Carolina Jacksonville frustrating. Right. So when, when I when I look at this offense, John, to me it's about a head coach that's developing a head coach and a play caller. Let me say that. Let me, I'm talking more of the play caller. Right. It's about a play caller developing both both with just his his ability to to, to, to uh, call plays as as well as his ability to to cater and 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 really scheme around what Deshaun Watson does well, and you're watching a quarterback develop and, and learn what he has to do to win versus versus top-tier opponents. And, and and unfortunately, that's not always a seamless process. Uh, unfortunately, there's, there's going to be some struggles. What I can do is I can live with red zone struggles here and there. I can live with penalties being a problem here and there. Those are all football things that everybody in the game uh, struggles with from time to time. What you can't what you, what I can't live with, is the inability to adjust, the inability to move the football, the the, the zero resemblance of an identity of a football team, and and those are the things that you saw early in the season. Indy was none of that. Concerning, yes, but it was none of that that old stuff that you saw earlier in the season. Talking with Clint Sterner, our buddy from Sports Radio six ten covers the Texans, covers all Houston sports from two to six, and also Arkansas Razorback football, where he established a standard for all Razorback quarterbacks there while he was there in the late 90s. Clint, one thing that Bill O'Brien told us, I think it was it was probably two years ago. Maybe it was two years ago. Maybe it was last year. We were in here and we were talking about we were talking about just quarterback play in general, and we were talking about the red zone. And the Texans have been struggling in the red zone uh, last year. They getting down, they've been getting down there pretty readily, and they, but they were struggling to put the ball in the end zone. He said, I talked to Brady, and Brady said in his quarterback development, he said the red zone and being effective in the red zone was the last piece to the puzzle. He felt like he had kind of mastered everything else up to a particular point, but red zone really kind of gave him some issues. You've played the position. You you kind of I want to I want to get your thoughts about that, and then is that true? Was that the case for you when it got down in the red zone that that was? the most difficult area to kind of master in your career? Did you kind of have the same thing? And why is that for a quarterback to get all the way down into the red zone and then have that be such a difficult area for them to execute on a consistent basis? Well, no, there's no doubt about it. That's 100% accurate. Red zone, third downs. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy for experienced quarterbacks and, and play callers for that matter. Uh, well, let me say this. It's never easy. It's less difficult. To, to, to execute between the 20s. It's less difficult to execute the shot plays. Um, and when you get down inside the red zone, the windows are extremely, extremely narrow. 
the 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 uh, the the, the, um, the opportunity is very very slim. The opportunity to have success is very very slim. And when you throw the ball, um, you know it's 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 just you've got to be a a very very well designed play. Uh, it takes a lot of creativity. And and when you get down there, you you got to have a different frame of mind. I mean, when I watch Deshaun Watson right now, one of the most difficult things. Um, are not difficult, but one of the most frustrating things is understanding he's a young quarterback, and and right now things are moving extremely fast for him, particularly in the red zone. And so, uh, the simple things of like no penalties, no turnovers, uh, no sacks in the red zone. You know, when you get in the red zone, you've got points. You cannot take sacks. It's okay to throw the football away. If you got a clear escape, escape. But if you're in trouble, it's chaotic. Throw the football away. Throw it out of the back of the end zone. The the simple things that Brady. Uh, you know, he executes on a daily basis because he's seen everything a million times. One, it, it's completing balls and throwing touchdowns. But two, it's the simple things of throwing the football away when it's not there. Um, checking into a run play uh, when you when you really want to throw the football. Checking it down to your back when, when you really want to get the ball to Hopkins. And getting through your progressions really, really fast. The internal clock that a quarterback has has to speed up in the red zone. It has to be quick at all times. It has to speed up in the red zone. And so, and and I'll add this to that, John, it's exponentially more difficult for a quarterback in the red zone. When there's, when there, you're not a run first football team, Brady's not a run first football team. Deshaun Watson's not a run first football team. They've got to set the tone in the pass game. And so therefore the creativity is more important. The internal clock is more important. Staying in good situations is more important. So, so, yeah, there's no doubt about it, man, that when that piece comes together, I believe Deshaun Watson will be complete. The red, and the Texans have been very good in the red zone up until this game against Indianapolis, but I know that would have been one, and obviously they should have had a touchdown on the in-the-grass penalty, and that's a, that's a whole different story. Coming in on Sunday, Clint, is Derek Carr and the Oakland Raiders. And watching the Raiders in 2018, John Gruden's first year, and watching Derek try to manage that offense the first year, and watching him in 2019, now they've got a little bit more run game in the offense this year because they're big up front. Josh Jacobs is doing a good job running the football and doing a, actually doing a great job running the football. He's fifth in the NFL in yards per game, uh, up over 90. I think it's like 93 a game. Derek Carr looks like a different quarterback. Clint, when you go through a system change, how long does it typically take? How long did it take you? And I don't know if you went through multiple uh you know, systems as you went through your career, but how long does it take for a quarterback to kind of, you know, grasp a system, especially one like Gruden's where you can have 18, 19 words in a play call? How tough can that be? And what have you seen from Derek making it the, the transition from first year in the system to second year in the system? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously playing a cleaner style of football. I mean, they're, they're, they're using Josh Jacobs, and there's nothing better than a, than, a, than a good, solid run game that you can depend on and a game plan that's designed around getting that guy touches. Boy, that's quarterback friendly. A lot of quarterbacks don't like it because they want to throw it 70 times a game. <laughs> but, boy, that's, that, it's a lot easier to play quarterback. Or, again, let me say it's a lot less difficult to play quarterback when, when that's the, the plan. And, and I think that took a little bit of an adjustment for, for Gruden, too. Not just, not, I mean, not just Carr, but Gruden, too, to really commit to the run game uh, and, and center your offense around that guy. And, and so – um, you know, look, I'm a big car fan, man. I thought when he came out, I thought he was highly underrated. Um, I, I love what he brings to the table as far as throwing the football. Um, you know, I, I think he he's going to have a big day. I mean, they're they're going to put up numbers, man. They're, they're the 
Romeo Cornell's bend don't break, uh, you know, mentality between the twenties is is a lot of what when I hear on the radio we get callers about complaining. A lot of what I hear is hell. It's part of the plan. It, you know, it's just one of those. The bend don't break. Romeo Cornell doesn't care how many yards he gives up. It's just it's it's all about points, and they're going to buckle down in, in the red zone and and things get tight down there. I just don't know that the Raiders have a ton of weapons outside that Derek Carr is completely comfortable with right now. And so I think they're going to be a little bit handcuffed versus this Texas defense in, in third and longs and in in in, uh, in the red zone. And so, you know, you got to give the Texans the advantage. But Derek Carr is dangerous. John Gruden is dangerous. You throw Jacobs in the mix, these guys are dangerous. They're not consistent enough right now to win consistently throughout the season and win consistently versus the top-tier uh, NFL teams. But, man, they're dangerous. They sure are uh, trending upward, and the Texans need to be careful this week because they got a lot of skill, they got a good plan, and, uh, and they'll bite you if you're not careful. All right, I'm going to ask you this one, Clint, and you can reserve judgment until April, but i got a feeling that the Miami Dolphins or one of these uh, Owen-whatever teams are going to have an opportunity to look at two quarterbacks coming from the SEC, the conference that you played in many, many years ago. Alabama's Tua Tonga-Vailoa, LSU's Joe Burrow. Now, there are some others that are uh, in that mix. Justin Herbert from Oregon, maybe Jake Fromm from Georgia, and we'll see who else uh, declares in that. Obviously, uh, Jordan Love from Utah State is a guy that I really like as well. But if you're sitting there and you've got the choice – between Tua Tonga-Vailoa and Joe Burrow, what you know right now, what you've seen of them from last year, this year, all told, which quarterback would you take going forward with the better NFL future? Well, you know, I, 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 NFL futures are tough. Now, you're talking about the draft. Um, I, I got to go with Tua in, in that situation simply because I, I believe that, that his – I've heard from enough people that his intangibles are extremely elite. They're Jalen Hurts-like. Uh, that's important in a first-round draft pick. And, and quite frankly, I'm just not real high on Joe Burrow. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think he's a great college quarterback. I, I respect the hell out of him. I think, I think the transition he's made, the improvement he's made, is unbelievably um, respectable and admirable. I mean, I, I mean, the guy's doing doing big, big things. But when I watch him play, I don't see any lead arm. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I haven't seen enough of the success this season versus high tier, top top quality opponents to buy into it. Hell of a season. His stock is rising. He's going to make some money. Where before, I don't know that he's even going to make any money. But but when I what I know about the draft, I think the hype around Tua is going to put him in the mix. I'm not sold on Tua either, as far as as just being an elite talent at the NFL level. Uh, and 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 to me, the way that the NFL it falls in love with big 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 guys that can move and have a big arm, I would expect Herbert to be the guy that everybody. I mean, of course, there's a lot of hype around him already. But I would expect him to be the guy that everybody just builds up throughout the draft because he can throw at 80 and he can rip it through a wall and he can he moves well. He's big. He looks good when he walks through the door. He's going to win the beauty pageant. Um, you know, I think the NFL will hype that guy up and end up making him the, 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 top, the number one quarterback. I don't know when he's going to go, but, but the top quarterback that goes. I must have been in the NFL way too long because I uh, Herbert's been my guy the whole time. But I just figured you being an SEC guy, give you an opportunity to pump up your SEC guys. But – uh, well said, man. I appreciate it. Clint Stern, you can hear him 2-6 to six, and every single weekday. You can hear him on our post-game show as well. And if you're an Arkansas Razorback fan, you better be following him for the best damn college football coverage anywhere on your school. Clint, you're the best, my man. Appreciate it, brother. You got it, brother. Y'all be good. Okay, when we get back, let's talk a little Raiders. 
Eddie Pascal covers the Raiders for Raiders.com. We'll join DP Sitters. We go behind enemy sidelines next on Texans All Access. As we kick off the second hour of the show, it's time for this week's Stats Challenge brought to you by Schlumberger. Visit HoustonTexans.com today to register to take the Stats Challenge. Now, two guys that will go under center for the respective squads. Sean Watson for your Texans and Derek Carr for the Raiders. Both right now with 100-plus passer ratings. If that holds for Derek Carr, it will be the highest passer rating in his career. He's been in the 96 range, but at 100.2 currently, that would be an all-time high for him his second year in the John Gruden offense. Derek Carr at 100.2, having a having an outstanding year really with the Oakland Raiders. Struggled a little bit last week against the Packers, and hopefully that continues for the former Clements High School Ranger starting quarterback, Derek Carr. There you go. This week's Stats Challenge brought to you by Schlumberger. All right, let's get back into it and go behind enemy sidelines with D.P. Sidhu. This week and every week that we have faced the Oakland Raiders, D.P. spends time with Eddie Pascal of Raiders.com. Been a while since I talked to you, Eddie. How's it going? I know. It's been a long time, but everything's good. Another beautiful, unseasonably warm day in here, here in Northern California, but... I have no complaints, and we're uh, looking forward to heading down to Texas. Yeah, it's been an unusual news week. Uh, let's get started for the big news of the week. Gary Ann Conley gets traded from Oakland to the Texans. The timing of it, does it surprise you? And what can you tell us about Conley, what he brings to this Texan secondary? The timing surprises me. Maybe like a 1 on a scale of 1 to 10, not really. Uh, I think it's kind of funky, obviously, just the fact that we're headed to Houston. We're going to play you guys on, on Sunday afternoon or early evening, whatever it is over there. But... Uh, Coach Gruner said, look, we have a lot of young corners, a lot of young defensive backs that we need to get reps. Uh, and he's looking down the road, 2021 and beyond. He goes, we need to get these guys on the field. Uh, and unfortunately, Garyon was kind of the cog that was preventing a lot of that from happening. And that's no shot at Garyon at all. You guys are getting a really, really good defensive back, a guy who can do a lot of things, uh, highly touted coming out of Ohio State. And has had moments, obviously had a pretty injury-plagued rookie season here with us. But after that, bounced back in a big way last year uh, and has shown, he's shown glimpses that he can really be a, you know, a standout lockdown corner. I mean, he, he was outstanding last year against Antonio Brown when the Steelers came to town. But I think that when you know, Coach Gruden's looking at it, it was kind of that consistency for Garyon and being able to do it week in and week out. Uh, and then also, you know, the fact that we do have two young corners that they drafted this year, they really want to see what they can do. So uh, the timing of it surprises me a little bit, but the fact that Garyon is now wearing a different jersey, uh, not so much. It's a little awkward, but we've dealt with that before. Demarius Thomas traded to the Texans right before the Texans played play the Broncos. So it'd be a little bit of a weird scenario. What can you give? Give me a fun fact about Garyon Conley that most fans may not know about him. Ooh, a fun one about Garyon. Garyon is Garyon. He's a, he's a pretty soft-spoken guy, so you're going to have to kind of prod and, and push and pull to get some stuff out of him. Uh, but he's he's a really nice kid, and he's really into gaming. And I know it's kind of like the de facto, you know, everyone these days, is especially for corner defensive backs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so there, but that's, I mean, Garyon is like really, really into it. Um, one of our guys here on staff, Kyle, who's our resident esports guy, uh, has actually delved into Garyon's gaming career. And he's like, oh, this guy's that's pretty legit. So he's a stud, he can be a stud <laughs> on the field, and he's a stud in, in the virtual space as well. So, gaming career, I love it. All right, let's talk about the Raiders 2019 season. We watched a little bit of, of it play out on Hard Knocks, and John Gruden's really had to work through some adverse times and distractions this year. Uh, talk to me about Hard Knocks, Antonio Brown, Vontez Burfitt getting suspended. 
What's what have been the biggest challenges off the field, and how has John Gruden been able to sort of rally the troops in the locker room and get them going each week? Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned two of them, and I think the third one that not as many people are talking about is the the road schedule, the road stretch that we're in right now. I think this is our fifth road game in a row. You know, we've we've kind of lost track. We went to London for a week. The scheduling gods were not very kind to us in 2019, and obviously, Coach Gruden has no control over that or how the schedule gets made. But I mean, you look at the stretch that this team has been on. Uh, and I don't know if you're going to see a lot of teams in the NFL that have traveled as much and as often and as far as this team has. But I think Coach Jordan has really done a heck of a job keeping these guys uh, not only motivated, but really together. Because, you know, as you mentioned, there's been no shortage of surprises and bumps along the way of this 2019 season. But. Uh, you know, you talk to Coach Gruden, the guy's an ultimate, you know, the ultimate motivator, the ultimate, you know, players coach. Guys, you know, talk to him for 10 minutes and they come out saying, hey, I'm ready to run through a wall for this guy. Uh, so he's really done a good job. And I think that I think the best thing or one of the best things I should say that he's done in 2019 is you look at this Raiders team now and it has an identity. They know who they want to be. They know how to win. They've shown the blueprint of how they can be successful on Sundays. And, you know, excluding 2016, that really wasn't the case the past couple of years. But now this team has a vision of who they are, who they want to be. Uh, and Coach Gruden and Mike Mayock have gone and gotten those players that can fill, uh, fill the roles that they need filled and kind of take that, that vision to life. So, uh, you know, sitting at 3-3, three and three, I think, you know, Coach Gruden deserves a ton of – you know, ton of credit for keeping these guys motivated. And, you know, I think it's going to be a heck of a ball game on Sunday. Yeah, that road schedule, you bring up a good point because I, we're, the Texans are going to London after this Raiders game. And I saw that the Raiders went to Indianapolis and immediately from Indianapolis went to London. And I, I just thought that stretch in itself must have been tough. But they came back with a win. It's, it was working for them. So uh, good for the Raiders, especially um, for being able to, to pull that off. Let's talk about Josh Jacobs. He's quietly been breaking some rushing records, four touchdowns on the year. How much of a surprise has his success been this early on? What does he do well, and, and what's made him so successful? Uh, man, I mean, what does he do well? Like, where to begin? I mean, he really is kind of that complete three-down back. I actually talked to him after the game on Sunday, uh, you know, after another 124-yards uh, effort, I think it was. And I was like, hey, man, like, are you surprised at how well this has been going for you? Like, you're drafting the first round, so people expect you to come in and contribute right away. But this is going, like, really, really well. And, and he kind of laughed, and he said, he's like, honestly, man, like, I, I, I don't come in with, like, expectations. He goes, I, I didn't think that. He's like, I never doubted myself that I could do it on the NFL level because I'll be honest with you, like, it is a little surprising how well it's gone in the early goings. Uh, there's really not much that this guy doesn't do. And Coach Gruden was actually talking yesterday. He said, you know, the way that he's playing, the fact that he's playing so well and he's so dynamic, you know, it's hard to take him off the field. I mean, there's not a lot of instances where Josh on the field is not going to be a, you know, a net positive for this team. Uh, but as you said, you know, he's breaking records every week. I think it was two weeks ago. He had eclipsed Marcus Allen in terms of rushing rushing yards in a first in his first five games. Last week, he eclipses Bo Jackson through his first six games. So you know, you look at some of the guys that Josh is now in the Raiders record book with, and uh, it's a some pretty good company. Let's talk about Derek Carr. He's now in year six. What are your thoughts on his progress so far? He's dealt with so much in his career, from injuries to the rebuilding over there in Oakland, a new coaching staff. How has he been able to adapt and bounce back, uh, and what do you see out of him this year? You know, I, I think Derek deserves a ton of credit in 2019 uh, for how this team is playing. I mean, one thing you mentioned, the coaching staff changes, uh, the fact that, 
you know, he's dealt with injuries. I mean, Derek, you know, much like this team in general, has had no shortage of adversity through his career. But another thing that's happened this year is his wide receiving core has literally changed from week to week to week. Tyro Williams has been down the past couple weeks, who was a de facto number one coming into, into the regular season. Uh, and he hasn't been able to go. Coach Gruden sounded hopeful that he might be able to go this week. We probably won't know a little later in the week uh, what Tyrell's status is. But without Tyrell, Dwayne Harris has been hurt. Uh, you know, a ton of guys have been hurt. J.J. Nelson was hurt a lot before he was ultimately released from the team. But each week, Derek has had a different set of receivers throwing the ball to. And I think he deserves a ton of credit and credit that I honestly don't think he's getting right now for being able to move this offense up and down as effectively as he has been. And, you know, the numbers aren't, you know, the crazy 400, 500-yard performances that we've seen from D.C. in the past. But, I mean, he's doing exactly what he needs to do. He's been very, for the most part, uh, careful with the football, protecting the rock, uh, putting the team in the right positions to, to get points. And, you know, he's been stellar. And like I said, the stats might not be there, but make no mistake about it, Derek is really – still the the stir the spoon that you know stirs the drink for this Raiders offense in a lot of ways let's talk about that Raiders offensive line signed a Richie Incognito this offseason we're wondering how that project uh, was going to go panned out well it seems because the O-lines played pretty well and that's without Trent Brown who a lot of Texans fans were very interested in and he goes to the uh, the Raiders but he's playing on the right side of the line how close I know he didn't I know he didn't play last week against Green Bay. How close is he to returning? And, and talk to me about that transition that he had to make. Oh, man. I mean, I think, you know, kind of like Tyrell, we'll learn a little later in the week uh, exactly where Big Trent's at. Uh, Coach said yesterday that, you know, it's he's about 50-50 somewhere in that, uh, in that ballpark to see if he's able to go. But, I mean, Trent has been everything and more that I think the Raiders hoped that he would be when they signed him uh, during free agency. Really locked down the right side of that line has been stellar. Obviously, he didn't play last week dealing with the calf injury. Uh, but when he's when he's healthy and he's ready to go, uh, Coach Gruden and Mike Mayock have said, I don't know if there's a better right tackle in the NFL than Trent, and I'm pretty inclined to believe them. But that offensive line, that unit up front in general, has been really, really good uh, the entire year. Uh, without Trent, David Sharp steps up, and he takes over right tackle. Uh, and really, you know, it's hard to re- replace a guy like Trent. I mean, he's he is who he is, but, you know, David Sharp stepped in and played really admirably. Uh, no sacks, no quarterback hits, and the team ran for over 150 yards last week. So, I mean, this offensive line is really kind of the catalyst for what this team wants to do offensively. Uh, Coach Gruden has stressed time and time again, you know, he wants to play that smash mouth, control the you know, control the clock, establish a tone of the line of scrimmage football. And if you want to do that and if you want to do it really well, you need a beast offensive line, and that's exactly what the Raiders have in 2019. The Raiders have faced a lot of different types of quarterbacks this year, veteran quarterbacks, young quarterbacks. They played Patrick Mahomes earlier, Jacoby Brissett defeated the Colts. Uh, How has the Raiders' defense fared against these sort of dual-threat quarterbacks that they faced this year? Obviously, they're going to be facing Deshaun Watson for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been kind of a mixed bag. I think that when you look at the, the Raiders as they stand right now, uh, they, they need help in, in numerous areas. Uh, I think obviously the linebacking core is not as, uh, not as stacked as you would like. I don't know if the depth is there at this moment, uh, but they, it's been a mixed bag. They've taken advantage of some opportunities that teams have given them. They've had timely turnovers, which helped immensely. Uh, and even if you're not playing the type of complete defense that you want, if you're able to take the ball away uh, and enforce turnovers, that goes a really, really long way. And, the way that this offense wants to play, they want to control the clock, 
They want to keep the opposing offense on the sidelines as much as possible. I think that goes a long way in, in helping your defense as well. But I think that there's definitely some bright spots on this defense. You look at a guy like Max Crosby, a day three pick uh, in the NFL draft last year, who has really turned it up as of late. Sacks in back-to-back weeks. A high motor guy, a guy who can do a lot of things on that defensive line, and there, you know, there is reason to be optimistic for this Raiders defense. Uh, obviously, Aaron Rodgers was Aaron Rodgers last week at Lambeau, and you know, you look at his stats, and there's really no explaining those away. But you know, the Raiders are going to have have a tough one again this week, and with your guy Deshaun. But I'm, I'm excited to see how they fare, no doubt. All right, the Raiders are moving to Vegas, not quite yet, but how has the fan reaction been there? We played. Um, against the Chargers a few weeks ago, and it's been a little bit of a rough go for them. But it seems like there's not really been a, too much of a drop-off with Raiders fans, has there? No, I, I mean, granted, we haven't played a home game in what seems like four months at this point. But uh, in the early goings, yeah, I mean, the energy of the Coliseum has still been great. I mean, whenever we go on the road, and I'm sure it'll be the same case Sunday down in Houston, Raider Nation shows up. They've been very excited. Uh, and I think that, you know, having a team playing football the way that the Raiders are currently playing football also helps. Um, you know, there's reason to be excited. There's reason to be united. And, uh, and, and obviously this organization is very, very excited about the next chapter coming in 2020 for this team. But I think the focus for Coach Gruden, for the players, and kind of all of us collectively uh, is here on 2019 and trying to get business done uh, right now. All right, good stuff. Eddie Pascal, team reporter for the Oakland Raiders. Eddie, thanks for the time, and we'll see you here in Houston on Sunday. 325 kick. Absolutely. Can't wait. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Excellent stuff there from Eddie Pascal, who covers the Raiders for Raiders.com. And, of course, our good friend, D.P. Sidhu. Coming up next, we're going to go behind the mics. But not with Oakland's man behind the mic, but with our man behind the mic. Well, yeah, Mark Vandermeer, too. But Kevin Kugler, he calls our preseason broadcast. And he does Westwood once Sunday night broadcast. He is also doing a Sunday game for Fox Television this week. They talked about a lot of different things. It's our Men Behind the Mic segment with Kevin Kugler and Mark Vandermeer next on Texans All Access. It's time for one of my favorite segments all week long. It's our Men Behind the Mic segment. Now, typically, Mark catches up with the play-by-play voice of the other side. And unfortunately, Brent Musburger's got a lot going on, and he's getting ready for that team to move to Las Vegas, so he was unable to join. But Kevin Kugler... Our preseason TV voice and play-by-play man. You can hear him on Westwood One on Sunday nights. You can hear him Sunday also on a Fox game. I think he's got the Buccaneers game this week. Kevin Kugler joins us. How about that? So Kevin Kugler and Mark Vandermeer, it's our men behind the mics. Joining us right now on Texans Radio, Kevin Kugler, preseason TV voice of the Texans. Boy, it sounds weird to say that about somebody else, but he is. And... Kevin also does Big Ten Network stuff, Fox for the NFL, and Westwood One Sunday Night NFL Football, among many other things. So, Kevin, tell me something. You just had the Cowboys and the Eagles on Sunday night, and are the Cowboys back? Were they ever here? Where are they at? That's a good question, because if you'd asked me that before that Eagles game, I would have said, I don't know where they are. They lost three straight. They looked terrible in doing it. Um, And then this past weekend... They put consistent pressure on Carson Wentz. He never had a chance to breathe. The offense was going at a high pace. I think you have to say they've figured something out based on that one game. Now, we'll see if they figured something out in back-to-back-to-back games, but at least for the moment, the Cowboys appear to have figured something out, and they've given the Eagles a lot to think about because the Eagles are in a little trouble right now. 
Well, you had Kansas City a few weeks ago, and you don't have them this Sunday because you're going to do a Fox TV game, but what do you make of what the Chiefs are going through overall with Matt Moore playing quarterback for a while? Boy, that's and, and they got lucky because with the Mahomes injury, you thought this could be season ending. Sounds like it's just going to be a few weeks. They may get him back as early as their game in Mexico City against the Chargers in mid-November, but they've got to just figure out a way to hold this thing together, kind of you know, bailing wire and string and just sort of tie everything together to try to hang on until Patrick Mahomes gets back. Maybe it's that defense that will be able to handle the load. If you can limit what is going to happen to you on the uh, on the offensive side from the other team, it makes the job a lot easier for Matt Moore. At least he has experience. He looked decent in the uh, opportunity he had last week after the Mahomes injury, but now it's a different animal. Now you have to come out and start against one of the hottest teams in football in the Green Bay Packers and certainly one of the best quarterbacks the game's ever seen in Aaron Rodgers. Kevin Kugler joining us. All right, on Fox you have Tennessee and Tampa Bay, right? And this could have been number one versus number two quarterbacks drafted in 2015, but Ryan Tannehill has taken Mariota's spot. What do you think of this one going in? Boy, it's it's an interesting matchup, and there's a lot of storylines because for Tampa the question is, at two and four, where are they going? And are they really going to go anywhere this year with Bruce Arians in his first year, or is he just going to decide at some point before the trading deadline to get rid of what they can and start to rebuild for next year or years down the road? Tennessee clearly isn't giving up, and their offense was as good last week with Ryan Tannehill as it's been at any point this season. He had his best quarterback rating in 24 games. He really distributed the ball well, got his receivers involved, and there's some talent receiver, as you know, with that Tennessee team. If they're able to get that kind of offense, then maybe they can turn things around as this season goes along. They're clearly still in contention in the division. You guys know that better than anybody. But this is a Tennessee team that I think this is a big crossroads game for both of these teams. Who comes out on top of this one? It may determine what their outlook is for the good portion of the remainder of this season. All right, Kevin, you do NFL games everywhere, and you've done some in this building. Preseason is one thing. I know you've done some regular season here at NRG Stadium. And so aside from this, NFL atmospheres, what do you like? What really captivates you as an announcer? What do you find really moving an atmosphere to be in around this league? Well, I enjoy, the, I enjoy when the crowd gets involved. I grew up in, the, in a college football world, and so when you can find a crowd – that really gets involved in the game. They're not just, it's not a, some some NFL cities have a, a corporate feel to their game. You know, a lot of folks that are there, you know, just to hang out and be seen. Houston is not one of those places. Green Bay is not one of those places. Kansas City, Seattle, those are some loud, engaged environments. For me, as a broadcaster who goes in most of the time without any rooting interest one way or the other, it's, it's better and it's more entertaining for me when you've got a crowd that's into the game, that's living and dying with every play, and there are that's not always the case around the league. There are a select few cities that the crowd really does a good job of becoming engaged in that game. And that's, to me, as a broadcaster, you can kind of feed a little bit off the excitement of the crowd. Their energy, their buzz in the stadium kind of gets you revved up a little bit. Kevin Kugler joining us. All right, so you're from Nebraska. And you're not old, but you're not Gen Z either. So you tell me, is Nebraska, does it feel like a Big Ten school now, in your opinion? What is the feel like in Lincoln, in Omaha, all around the state? Uh, I don't think it's quite there yet, to be honest with you, Mark. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting there. It's better than it was five years ago. But it's still, 
you know, I, I, I always enjoyed Nebraska-Oklahoma. Heck, mm-hmm. I enjoyed Nebraska-Kansas State. I mean, those were, those were games that you grew up on in college football. Any of us of a certain age, the game was always Nebraska-Oklahoma on Thanksgiving weekend. That sort of signaled the end of the year. It signaled bowl season time, and it signaled a, a great game after you stuffed yourself full of Thanksgiving turkey. That game doesn't happen anymore, and Nebraska plays Iowa the day after Thanksgiving, and we're actually broadcasting that game on Big Ten Network. And it's getting there, and it will be 20 to 30 years from now. I think it'll be a great rivalry, border states and all that, but it's still a work in progress trying to get that switch, and it's going to take time. It's just going to take generations growing up as a Big Ten school. And I think what would also help is if Nebraska became – a little more than competitive in the Big Ten Conference. They have not exactly lived up to their end of the bargain as far as competing for Big Ten division or conference championships yet. Once they do that, I think you get all that tied together. But for right now, it just sort of feels like, you know, there's sort of a half-hearted hug. It's like that second cousin that you see once a year, and you kind of give them a hug at the reunion, but you're really not sure what they're doing or why they're there, and they're not sure about you either. It's kind of that feeling with Nebraska and the Big Ten still. All right, compare and contrast atmospheres, Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State, when they're good, when they're good. I'm not asking which one's the best necessarily, unless you feel like answering it, but I got to feel like, I got to think there's a difference between all these. I've been to Penn State when they're good, and that is special. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Michigan probably, because of the build of the stadium, not because of the passion of the fan base, when they're all good and they're all packed in, Michigan's probably third on the list, even though it's the biggest because the way the bowl is built, the sound just sort of drifts up. It never really feels like it's deafening. When you go to Penn State for a big game, like they had this past weekend with the whiteout, that's loud and it's crazy and it's, it is, it's nuts there. Ohio State is right there in the middle, in my opinion. They are very loud. They're always there. I mean, you, no matter who they're playing or when the game is, that place is going to be full of people because they know their team is likely going to win, especially these days. But for me, of those three teams that you mentioned, I'll answer it. I think Penn State, when they're good and when it's a big game, that place is as good as any place in college football. Outstanding. All right, what is your favorite place to broadcast a college basketball game? What's the best home court for you, being objective uh, as you are? I, 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 can, I can be objective on this. Allen Fieldhouse, mm. University of Kansas is one of the best venues, regardless of sport, to broadcast the game. You have all the history. You have the creepy rock chalk Jayhawk chant. You have all of the, the history and the, and the talent that has played at and is currently playing at Kansas. They always seem to be having great games. The crowd is always into the game. For me, Allen Fieldhouse, if you were to rank basketball venues in college, it's probably number one on my list. That's my number one, too. I've only done one game there, but it was deafening. I could not hear myself, and that was no, outstanding, No, you actually. can't. You can't ever hear yourself at that place. It's just deafening. You can feel the table shaking a little bit when they really get going. It's, it's fantastic. And you're right. When you walk the halls before the game and Wilt Chamberlain, and, I mean, James Naismith coached there. I mean, that's ridiculous. So... You get that uh, that picture. All right, Kevin Kugler joining us. Now, tell me something about the College World Series. I know you're very familiar with this event because you've done it many times. Have you done it almost every time, Kevin, since you started doing it a long time I, ago? I, I do them all. Every, okay. every game, every inning, every, I'm there for the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. All right, so what do people not know about this event that they need to if they've never been? What do they need to know about the College World Series? 
Uh, it's it's still the most laid back major NCAA championship. So what I mean by that is you can show up that day, you can find a ticket, you can wait in line, you can sit in the GA section, you can enjoy a game. It doesn't feel like it is, you know, and I love the Final Four. I've been fortunate enough to, to call the Final Four for a long time now. But it, it always has a, a little more of a corporate atmosphere to it. You're in a giant football stadium, 75,000 people, lots of folks walking around. College World Series is much more of a, still a relaxed summer event. And if LSU is here, you can all, don't eat before you come to the ballpark if LSU is in the College World Series because they're going to have food waiting for you in the parking lot. They bring their food up to tailgate. And I promise you, you're going to find some of the best gumbo and some of the best crawfish because they bring it with them and they cook it right there in the parking lot. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the College World Series when LSU is here. I was lucky enough to be there when Nebraska was in. Gosh, I want to say it was for the first time or something like that. It was it was in the early O's. It was maybe one of the only times, and it was nuts. I mean, it, it was like a football game there with all the tailgating and everything. When, when Nebraska's in, they've been in three times, not since 2005, but it's the loudest I've ever heard of the College World Series because it becomes a – Look, Nebraska football crowds are legendarily good. They've shown up despite some seasons that really haven't rewarded them much over the last several years. They keep showing up to that stadium. Mm -hmm. They showed up in a big way and cheered like a football game at the College World Series. Pretty remarkable. Excellent. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us, as always, and uh, have a great week of calls. I appreciate you having me on, Mark. Thanks so much. I'll be straight up honest. You guys know how much uh, I think of Mark as a play-by-play man. I am a huge Kevin Kugler fan. I love listening to him do Sunday night games. I, listen, I know you're supposed to say that you love Kevin Harlan, and Kevin's, Kevin's okay, and, he, and he's great basketball. But I love listening to Kevin Kugler do play-by-play football. I think he has the right mix of information, excitement, infotainment. I, I love listening to him, so it was great to catch up with him for our Men Behind the Mics segment. Now, when we get back, it's our In the Lab crew. Boy, we had a lot to break down from last Sunday. We're going to do that next on Texans All Access. We've got one final segment of this edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am your host, John Harris, football analyst and salary reporter, and one half of the tag team that makes up the In the Lab podcast along with Drew Doherty. Now, you can go to iTunes. You can hear the podcast in its entirety but usually on a Wednesday, I try to give you a little snippet of what we talked about during that particular podcast. And we went back and looked at the Colts game at what we felt like were the turning points and who also were the cream of the crop players for your Texans in that matchup. Plus a quick look ahead at what we're watching against the Oakland Raiders. Let's talk turning points. We each have one that we want to discuss, but there were turning mm-hmm. points in the game and the loss at Indianapolis. We're going to start with yours, because usually I hog it. I'm a ball hog on these that's things, right. and I go first. But uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to start with our turning points. We're going to get into the cream of the crop, and then we're going to get into this Raider matchup, or at least a key matchup within the game to keep an eye on. But, Johnny, there were I would say there were many, many turning points. Yeah. But if you had to pinpoint one, I got which one. one are you choosing? I got one. This, okay. this, this to me was... I, I wanted to say when, when you when you first texted me and said how do you feel about this and I was like yeah yeah, yeah I think this would be a good one I I immediately thought about the first drive of the game mm-hmm. 
because you line up in illegal formation because Will Fuller's out. Then Dan Skipper gets called. They get called for illegal formation again because Skipper didn't. He did rush the chest like he's supposed to, but he didn't get Tony Crinton's attention to do it. Yeah. And so I felt like that first drive, if you go down and put points on the board, maybe it changes a little bit that you're putting the pressure on the Colts. Maybe the Colts, with that little bit of pressure, it just felt like the Colts felt a little bit like they were playing with house money all day, maybe. Um, so I thought about that drive. It's safe to say the Texans are going to go out of their way now to make sure that the ref sees the uh, the brush of the chest. I'm yeah. guessing, right? Yeah, I would imagine they're that. gonna oh, they're gonna get in their face and like like yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they get up and hey ref, hey ref, and they're gonna stand there and, and do like, jumping jacks beforehand. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, the thing that was frustrating was I saw I saw Skipper go in there later, and I realized what the problem was the referee's not paying attention. Yeah, he's not paying attention. Skipper was standing in front of him for like five seconds, and then he finally said, "Oh, he's eligible." Yeah, and so it was. Frustrating. It's almost like you're guard. You got to be guarding a guy in basketball where you put your hand in his face and wave yeah. it. So, anyways, sorry, yeah. I divert. Um, I thought there were two. I thought there were two pretty big moments, but the Texans had made it twenty-one sixteen. So coming out of half, the Colts go down, score, make it twenty-one nine. I'm like, oh boy, we're in trouble. But then we go five plays, seventy-five yards. Gorgeous drive. Don't face a third down. We did it in a minute 46. Yeah. I mean, it was like bang, bang, bang. Pew. It was fun to watch. Mm-hmm. So now it's 21-16. We've answered that touchdown with a touchdown of our own. Okay, defense, do your second half thing. You get them to third and 11. Taking mine, dude. Am Dang. I taking yours? That's all right, though. Go okay. Forward. I got another one. Okay. Third and 11. They force Jacoby Brissett with pressure. He basically throws the ball away. And it was 3rd 11 at the... Uh, Indy 24. Yeah, right. You're off the field. 3rd 11. Defensive holding. Five yards. Okay, so that's, that's part A. It's, part it's five a. yards, but it's a first down. It's a first that's, down. That kills. It's a killer. So they continue on, and they get they pick up another third down by hitting Ebron. They pick up another third down, hitting Hilton. They get um, then they get the second and fifteen, third and twelve. Third, actually, it's third and goal at the twelve. It's part B. Yeah, I know where this is. Incomplete pass to Zach Pascal. Perfect coverage. Philip Gaines in position. Going to force him to a field goal. Now, kick the field goal. Vinatieri's been you know he struggled early, but you know look, it's a chip shot. It's at the twelve. It's twenty nine yards, less than an extra point. He makes that twenty four sixteen. Now, okay, you held them, go down and score, and then you can decide whether you want to kick the extra point or not. But instead of being 28 to 3, it's 20, you know, or 28 23 later in the game, it's 24 23. Mm-hmm. So now there's a little bit of a situation there. But no. Part B, you get called for unnecessary roughness unnecessarily and not by the ref's call. The ref made the right call. Yeah. So the, the the replay is clear. He made the right call. Give them a first down and goal. They score uh, with the little shovel pass to Zach Pascal. Mm-hmm. Those part A and part B. Defensive holding on the third and eleven. That unnecessary roughness that ended up giving them a touchdown and made it twenty eight to sixteen. Because what's been the hallmark of this Texans team over the last month or so in the third quarter? Dominating the third quarter. <laughs> exactly. Both both second half. I mean the Texans are. 
They're one of the leaders in the second half scoring points throughout the league. They might be the leader at this point. I know a couple weeks ago they were second. Yeah. I think going into the Chiefs game, they were second, and they scored how many in the second half? Well, they scored a bunch in the – they didn't score a bunch in the second half of that one. They scored a bunch in the first half. They scored eight in the second half. And then uh, they scored 14, so 22 plus 87 – 85, I'm sorry, is 107. So they scored 107 points in the second half of games this year, which is pretty darn salty. I mean, you're uh, – what is that? Like 15 points in the second half on average? Yep. That was a long drive, John. So twelve plays, seventy-five yards, three penalties, and yeah, and the conversions and on third down that they ended up getting, oh. just brutal because guys were guys were wide open, unfortunately. But you should have never been in that situation. It should have been a touchdown for the Texans, a three and out. You're off the field. You get the ball back, and now Uncle Mo is all on your side. Part A, defensive holding. Part B of the turning point is the unnecessary roughness. So probably. it looks ugly, man. It's 28-16 at that point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the next next drive, Hyde gets stopped for a loss of one. He hit Hopkins for 10. Incomplete to Stills. Okay, Texans are going for it on fourth down. You get it. And then you got to uh, – you got you got the fourth down and one at the 48 – it's an incompletion. That looks bad. Okay, so here's my turning point. Next drive for the Colts, it's basically three and out. They punt. Mm-hmm. After that, I, I said, I turned to DP, I said, Texans score here and get one more stop. Game over. Texans run right. away with this thing. I think right. they, they absolutely run away. So, following that three and out, what happens? Hyde gets 10 yards. Ooh, looking gorgeous. Hopkins, 15 yards, mm-hmm. looking gorgeous. Oh, I know where you're going with this. But then Hyde gets stopped for a loss of three. Then Deshaun scrambles for 11, and Hopkins, you hit him for 15, and then the pass gets picked off. So I think that right there, that was yeah. a tough one. But you still you were had chances. The ball. But you still had chances I know, because the defense, four punts, John, just get in a, the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter, fourth quarter. You get a you get a score after one of those punts, and I think the Texans it's like an avalanche, and that the dam just breaks, and they finally get going. Yep. The, those were my turning points. There's kind of a few of them in the fourth quarter. My first one was the one you took. Yeah. Because I think third quarter on they they roll in this one. Yeah. Now it's ifs and buts and candy nuts, and we're all making excuses, but those are some turning points for us. Give credit to the Colts. You can't make mistakes against the Colts. They're going to no. beat you. That it's a well coached team. It's a talented team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the Texans' chances the next time they come here. And giddy up. Cream of the crop. Who's your cream of the cropper? Oh, that's a good one. I think DeAndre Hopkins has to be the cream of the crop on yep. the day. He was he was phenomenal. Nine catches, 106 yards. Should have been 10 for 110 and two touchdowns, but it was nine Three. for 106 and one touchdown. I've never seen Deshaun so mad. As he should be. He, he should have been. been. I mean, because here's and, – and it's funny because Mark and I talked about this, and this is very, very clear. If Deshaun is in the grasp and the whistle is blowing, then when Sheard hits him up top – it should have been a Personal fifteen-yard penalty. It should have been a fifteen-yard penalty. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. If you're trying to protect him, then that shot should have been a fifteen-yard penalty. Yeah. So that that to me is pretty clear. But that said, that said, that should have been four points for more for the Texans because he ended up kicking a field goal. Uh, I think DeAndre was fantastic. Uh, he took that shot right above the knee. Flip. Got flipped over on that drive, oh, back up. and that was such a great drive. But. He would he would be mine. Um, 
I was really hoping it was going to be. I was good. I was hoping it was going to be Deshaun. I thought the interception in the the first interception was one that he's like, you got to have back. That that he he'd want that one back. That was him just trying to make a play, feeling like, hey, we don't have many more drives in us, and yet you still had two drives after that. Mm-hmm. So, wish they would have gone down and scored on that one, and then maybe had more time at the end. But the second interception was not his. He put that ball on Kiki, just unable to catch it, and Leonard made one heck of a play. But I, I would say DeAndre Hopkins. He was exceptional all day. Pierre Desir is known as the Hopkins killer. Well, he didn't kill much of nothing on Sunday against Hopkins. So uh, I would say DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, I, Pierre Desir is a good player. But a good player, yeah. need to slow wrong. down with that Hopkins killer nonsense because yeah. Hopkins was playing without a shoulder, yeah. with, with banged up legs last year when he did quote-unquote shut him down. Right. So let's just calm down there, friends. Yeah. Uh, not to take anything away from Desir, but nobody's going to shut this guy down if he's healthy. Um, my cream of the crop, I'm giving him to two players. You went with Hopkins. I'll go with Stills. Four catches, okay. 105 yards. Had the 45-yarder, had a 41-yarder. And then J.J. Watt. Yeah. I was ho- I was going to say, if we didn't if we oh, didn't mention him. Goodness. J.J. Watt was whipping dudes' asses. Yeah, he was. <laughs> Six quarterback hits. Batted down the pass first play of the game. Mm-hmm. He looked good, man. He was really, really causing problems for the greatest offensive line ever constructed. And um, <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought he was really, really, really good. And yep. I liked what the Texans did, man. Defensively, I didn't like you know all the stuff over the middle, the crossing patterns. But this was a run the damn ball. They've got hats made, and they mm-hmm. ran the damn ball for sixty-two yards. Okay? As a side note, as a side note, I don't know if you could could hear this. Where you were, Drew, but when they announced the Colts starting lineups, I have never in my life—I mean, we've been to how many NFL games, seen offensive, defensive starters, you know, uh, coming out, crowd cheers from everybody. Usually cheers loudest for the last guy or whoever that last guy is. I have never heard the crowd cheer loudest for a guard. He's good, man. Quentin like Nelson they do for Quentin Nelson. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, I remember when when uh, we were doing the mock draft survey, and you would ask me about that, and ask me like, "Well, you know, who would you mock, and or who do you have at number one?" My Harris one hundred that year, I put it in September. I put Quentin Nelson at number one, and I never <laughs> and I never moved it. Right, I never moved him. I mean, so he's why? phenomenal. He's phenomenal. But I will say, I will say, the boys, DJ Reader in particular, on one on one play in particular, I saw. I, oh my goodness, he bent Nelson backwards. Driving him right into Marlon Mack and forcing Mack right in the arms of Zach Cunningham for a yeah. tackle for a loss. Reader gets no stat, but football heads saw that and were like, "Whoa!" Mm-hmm. But I thought they were going to throw in that football down in the end zone. But either way, we'll see them uh, week eleven Thursday night, November twenty first, right here at Energy Stadium. Got business to take care of before that. So, um, and the Raiders coming to town. Yes. So, which Raider matchup do you care about most? Not care about most, but most. But which one are you watching the most? It's a good one. Uh, I think that Raiders have a very underrated tight end, Darren Waller. Mm-hmm. He's a former wide receiver at Georgia Tech, turned tight end. He doesn't block a ton, but he's a big, bad matchup. And the Texans did not match up really well with Eric Ebron the other day, which is not surprising because Ebron and man going man coverage on Ebron is not the easiest thing in the world. I thought, you know what? Ebron made a hell of a play on that touchdown catch. I thought the coverage was okay on that. Oh, the coverage was good on that play. A, he just wound up making no, no, no. a phenomenal catch. No, the, co- the coverage was exceptional. And I know on that you play. weren't saying he wasn't, but, no. or it wasn't. But I just I want to make sure that that's pointed out. Like 
Because he also had the shenanigans with Quentin Nelson there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's going to the flat. Yeah. And they basically went to the same spot almost, which was weird. I don't yeah. know if it was totally Nelson went to the way. flat, and then Ebron. Well, it's supposed to be as Nelson goes to the flat, and Ebron goes to the back of the end zone to give you two options. And, you know, you're hoping that you're hoping that Nelson beats. And Nelson did beat Gaines off the ball. Like Gaines, I think, realized, oh, crap, that's my guy. And then Gaines sprinted out there and got there. But yeah. that was one fast-moving dude getting to the flat. I'll say that. Uh, if he would caught a touchdown pass, the place would have fallen down. That all said, I think Waller this week ends up being a tough matchup. But the biggest thing I think the Texans have got to be able to do this week is tackle Josh Jacobs. Mm-hmm. Now, the run, the run defense was very, very good against Indianapolis. And I don't think Oakland's offensive line is quite like Indianapolis, but they got a couple of bare-knuckle brawlers up there. Uh so they'll hey, hit you in the face. Derek Carr has been sacked eight times yeah. in seven games. Eight times, John. So they'll hit, they've done okay. They'll hit you in the mouth. Um, they protect Derek pretty well. They uh, they run the ball pretty well with Josh Jacobs. But the one thing I noticed, the Packers, the Packers had guys at the ball, but Jacobs would run through those tackles. Mm-hmm. So I think Waller is a is a tough matchup. But Jacobs tackling him ends up being probably the biggest aspect of this game. If you tackle Jacobs and not allow him yards after catch, don't get him out in space where he's able to pick up two, three, four extra yards running through weak tackles or whatever the case might be. Then you got a good opportunity to slow them down at least. But I think Waller at tight end, Jacobs running the football, and how hard he runs the football end up being pretty big keys. So there you go. If you want to listen to our in-lab podcast in full – Go to EasterTexas.com, go to iTunes, or wherever you pick up your podcast. I will be honest, I am not the biggest podcast consumer, so I couldn't tell you, but I'm sure you know, and you can listen to the whole thing right there on our podcast. And big thanks to our friends over at Redbox who make the In the Lab podcast possible. Possible? Is that how you say it? I know, impossible. Is it possible if it's possible? I don't know. Either way, Spanish isn't all that good, but hopefully we give you a a few nuggets from the game against the Raiders to consider. Now, we did that podcast before uh, Gary on Conley was traded to the Texans, which I think lessens the Raiders' secondary a little bit, and that was one that gave up five touchdowns. And I know Raiders fans are like, well, hey, wait, wait. Gary on Conley gave up one of those touchdowns when he slipped on making a tackle uh, on a 74-yarder. I think it was on Marquez Valdez-Scantling. But we've seen players come from other organizations and come here and play very, very well. I mean, we saw Bradley Roby in 2018, had some struggles with the Broncos, kind of up and down, kind of inconsistent. Boy, he came here, and he leveled off and has been very, very good before that hamstring injury. He was very good. And hopefully Gary and Conley will do the same thing. Those Ohio State corners, man, there are a lot of first-rounders. Roby in 14, you had Eli Apple, you had Marshawn Lattimore, you had Denzel Ward, you had, uh, obviously, Gary and Conley. And I'm telling you, maybe the best one is coming. Jeffrey Okuda, <laughs> some South Grand Prairie ends up. South Grand Prairie, up near Dallas, ends up at Ohio State. How are y'all letting that happen, Texas and A&M and SMU and all you schools out there? And get these kids to stay home. My goodness, Jeffrey Okuda's a dude. And Damian Arnett on the other side is really, really good. Ohio State, ah, boy, it's tough. LSU might be safety, you, but, man, LSU's had some players, too. Pat Pete, Mo Claiborne, that's a good debate. DBU. Is it Ohio State or is it LSU? Texas can say all it wants. Uh-uh, you're out of the mix. It's Ohio State or LSU, especially in the last 10 years. 
it's those two schools. So I'll let you debate that over breakfast or dessert tonight, breakfast tomorrow, who knows, whatever floats your boat. So a lot of people to thank for today's show. Got to thank Andre Ware. Got to thank Mark Vandermeer. Got to thank Clint Sterner. Got to thank Eddie Pascal, D.P. Sidhu, Kevin Kugler, Drew Doherty, all of my guys for helping me back at Sports Radio 610. All of you for listening. Thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow. And as always, go Texans.